you are new to Hills today, we are in a series called The Story, which takes us on a journey through the entire Bible. I'm just thinking, Richard, maybe we'll just drop that down a little bit. And, um, and we're doing it because we're trying to understand God's big picture. We're just reading one chapter a week together. And I hope you've been enjoying it as much as I have. It's been a great series. So we go from the beginning in Genesis, obviously, uh, to the fall of, of mankind and their separation from God. And then the rest of the Bible really is God's redemption plan. And, and there's so much gold in there for us to mine and to, and to understand and to also apply. And we get through to, eventually we'll get all the way to Revelation at the end of week 31. You know, back to the garden, really. Israel were to be God's people who would set themselves apart and live with, uh, within covenant to show God to the world. And we followed them all the way from Abraham. And we're now in this, if you were here last week, we're in this golden age, kind of under David's reign as king. He leads the nation into this season of security and prosperity. And, uh, and if you were here last week, you would have, we, we focused in what is it that set David apart as leader? Why did God come to him and choose him? Because he wasn't actually Samuel's first choice. You know, isn't it so often the case when we think about who's going to be the leader? We've got an idea in our mind what it'll take, but God's got a different idea. In fact, David wasn't anyone's first choice. God was looking for something special. And here's what he said in, in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. He said, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And appointed him ruler of his people. See, God is he's concerned mostly about who we are. You know, what's going on in here. What we're good at and what we do is important. But they pale into significance about this. His primary concern is who we are as people. And I hope that was the lesson that you heard last week. If it's God's concern what's going on in here. If that's the key, then it has to be our concern too. This is one of the main purposes in, in life that God's put before us is transformed hearts that are, are going to align with God's. In other words, the desires of our hearts start to look more and more like the desires of God's heart. It's a lifelong journey for us. You know, in some seasons, that transformation that we always talk about, it comes quickly. In fact, it can come almost instantly for some people in some ways and in some areas of their life. In other seasons, it's that long, hard, day in, day out, disciplined journey, you know, where God's just doing the chiseling little bit by little bit. And the transformation happens that way. And then, unfortunately, there's those times when we sometimes fall over. You know what I'm talking about, right? If you read the chapter this week, you're already ahead of me. We take a step in the wrong direction and we fall over. And for some that fall, it's not too hard. Maybe we do kind of like a little bit of an army roll or something like that and we're back up on our feet in no time and maybe no one really noticed. It wasn't that painful. And then for others or in other times in our life, we kind of fall right over a cliff and it's a long drop and we hit the bottom of this deep ravine and we hit it hard and the recovery is painful. And it's long. And this is David. Even though last week I stood here and said, we all love David, don't we? And we went, yeah. And then this week we get to 
this moment where he falls off a cliff. David, the king that we admire, has a huge fall. We're going to read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting at verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Reba. But David remained in Jerusalem, probably where he wasn't supposed to be for starters. So something's already going wrong, right? Verse 2, one evening David got up from his bed and he walked. This is a little bit, you know, PG-15, right? So if young ones, just hold on to your chairs a little bit. And <laughs> one, one evening David got up from his bed and, and he walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her and the man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And David sent messengers to get her. She came up to him and he slept with her. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. If you've been reading along at home, you know the story only gets worse from here if you thought it was already bad. The cover-up begins. David recalls Bathsheba's husband Uriah home from the, the battlefield and hopes he will sleep with his wife to cover up what he did, you know, only to find out that he's actually an honourable man and he, he doesn't because his, his men are out in the field. So David gets more desperate and he arranges for him to be sent into the thick of the battle hoping that he will perhaps die and that's exactly what happens. Now I'm sure the, the narrative in David's mind was, was there going over and over trying to ease his guilt. I mean people, you know, they, they die in war, don't they? All the time. It can't be my fault. And regarding Bathsheba, well you know, You've sacrificed a lot to lead this nation. I was the one out there leading that army for all those years, fighting those wars. And I'm king after all, aren't I? And sometimes it's good to be king. You're allowed a little bit of extra leeway, aren't you? You know, the king, surely there's some privileges that you can sneak in there on the side. And besides, who's to say that Bathsheba's marriage wasn't in a bad way anyway? Isn't that kind of what we do when we do the wrong thing? When we do the wrong thing by God or by, by others, we justify our actions. We, we create a narrative to convince ourselves and, and anyone else that will listen that we're probably in the clear, you know? It's called self-deception. And for David and for many leaders before him that we, we often read about, and sadly, even from people that we, we, we discover in our own time, even within the church, in our own time in history, lust seems to be the cliff that too many, generally the men, fall over more than anything. Anyone else notice this? Very quiet today, church. I, I get it. It's, it's a serious subject. You're thinking, if I say something wrong, it'll be inappropriate. And Feel free to give some... Some feedback here. You know, the most recent well-known Christian leader to fall over this cliff is from in our own country. The leader of the, of the largest, church, largest church in our country. And, and you know, 
I was kind of flabbergasted to hear that the, the narrative was blamed on excessive alcohol about inappropriate contact with women. You know, it's like, hello, there's, there's a problem here if we're trying to say too much alcohol is the reason why this is going on. It's not, it, there's two things there that we need to be looking at. It doesn't excuse anything. For David, he probably thought he was in the clear. Everything seemed to go back to normal. And then at the very end of chapter 11, the author simply says this, 2 Samuel 11, 27, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. I, felt, I always feel like that's a little bit of an understatement. You know, I know they're trying to be good. The author's thinking this is David after all. Displeased the Lord. And we don't know how much longer after all this went down, but God steps in and he sends the prophet Nathan to confront him. See, at this stage, it seems that David doesn't even think he's fallen over the cliff. He thinks he's skirted the edge and just managed to pull himself back from the edge. He, he's deceived himself. But Nathan's about to wake him up from his self-deception and realize he's fallen over the edge and he's a mess. You know, he's down the bottom there. The arms are broken, the legs are broken, and it's deep and it's real. And then Nathan doesn't hold back. So once again, hold on to those seats. <laughs> 2 Samuel chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and he grew up with him and his children. It shared his food. It drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had came to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and he prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Nathan says to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah and all of this. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite from the, uh, with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And then he says this last bit, which I nearly left out today, but I actually think it probably needs to be in there. This is what the Lord says. One of your own household, I am going to bring calamity. Of, out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this in broad daylight before all of Israel. That's kind of intense. Hey, you can take that off the screen now. <laughs> Thanks, Joseph. You know, there's, there's a long list of consequences and brokenness that comes out of this one single moment of pleasure that David went after. You know, that high moral ground, we actually talked about it last week. 
Remember, he kept the high moral ground with Saul. It's gone. He lost it. The people could no longer look at David and say that about him. That one moment turned his life into a mess. That's the first point for today. Sin always has painful ripple effects. You know, we'll get to forgiveness later, so it's okay. (laughs) But even though there is forgiveness to be found in the Lord, the consequences of these things, of these sins that we we find ourselves into or that we go down, when we go down those paths, they, they reverberate for a long time. For David, it was, it was actually generational ripples, in my opinion. There's actually almost too many consequences to think of in this story. Here's some that I came up with, and, and I know some of these are obvious. Uh, you know, a man is killed. Imagine the grief that rippled out to, to his family because of David's choices. A marriage was interfered with and ended. Here's a ripple effect for David. His darkest moment is exposed to a nation he leads, and we're still reading about it thousands of years later. Imagine if that was you, having your deepest, darkest thing written down for everyone to study in a Bible study for the next you know, couple of thousand years. That's a ripple effect. I suggest to you that David's sin, for example, are also rippled out into his children's lives. See what you think of this. Amnon... A son of David. Actually, I'm just going to up it to M rated. <laughs> Amnon sexually assaults his half sister. That's one of David's sons. Another son of David, Absalom, then kills Amnon for that assault. That same son, Absalom, then overthrows David like a mutiny and takes his kingdom. And if you remember that really awful bit about Nathan's prophecy that I didn't really want to read to you, it then happens with Absalom and David's wives. David has to flee his kingdom. And after a long battle, it's almost a civil war. Absalom and many of his men are then killed and David eventually comes back to his throne. I mean, talk about consequences, right? You might be thinking, well, maybe you're drawing a bit of a long bow there when it comes to his sons, but I actually think the link is pretty clear. God warned about this way back at Mount Sinai. He said, the sins of iniquity tend to move down through the generations. You know, what happens to the father often kind of happens to the son. Not the, the penalty so much, but the ripple effect. Yes, the choices made by David's sons, Amnon and Absalom, they are theirs to own. Like, make sure you hear me on that this morning. It's theirs to own. But we should make no mistake, parents, who we are at our core and the way we live has a significant influence on our children and even our children's children. Never underestimate what our children take from their family of origin because You did the same from your parents, and your parents did the same from their parents. You know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? The way we do relationships, the way we handle conflict, the way we handle stress, the way we show love to each other in our marriage, how we show compassion, how we we forgive others, what our attitudes are like in all the different parts of our life, 
how we prioritise things, how we handle money and finances, how, how generous we are or, or perhaps how selfish we are. Your, your household has a culture and it covers everything about life and we, and we as parents, we set it. Parents are the thermostat of their household and it can flow through the generations. Peter Scazzaro, you know, I'm a big fan of his. He has a, a great saying that says, I have Jesus in my heart and grandpa in my bones. <laughs> now, everyone's a grandpa eventually, okay? So this is not picking on anyone here. <laughs> but you, do you know what he's saying? You get the point. You know, we can have Jesus in here and, and yeah, he's, we're, we're going for transformation, Jesus. But often it's, it's what we, we know from our family of origin that sticks with us and can affect us. We're all responsible for our own actions. I'm not saying that we're blaming others here. Oh, if you're hearing that, oh, Nathan's blaming his parents. Mum and Dad, I'm not blaming you guys. <laughs> I'm just saying this is a thing of life, a fact of life. These choices, the way we live, they ripple. They ripple out. A good friend of mine, had, uh, he told me a story once of something that he had experienced. This friend of mine said to me when he was growing up, he would often go to his cousin's place during holidays and while he was there, he was somewhat surprised to discover that the men in this family, in his cousin's household, you know, his uncle and his, and his male cousins, he was surprised about something. While they were watching TV or maybe just in general conversation, there seemed to be inappropriate comments that objectified women. You know, they'd be watching something on the, on the telly and an attractive woman would come on the screen and there would be something said that really is not appropriate that you wouldn't expect from Christian men, let alone any man. And it would later come out that he, this friend of mine's uncle, earlier in his life, he had had a, a series of, of affairs. And the outcomes of that were sadly predictable because predictable both his sons went through similar patterns in their own life when it came to women. Sins of iniquity can have a way of making their way through the generations. And that's why I think there's a warning in here for us about the ripple effects from the choices we make. It's really important for us to understand there's consequences. That's why God takes us so seriously. It, you know, it damages us. God doesn't want us falling into these traps, falling over the cliffs. It doesn't just damage us, it damages the people around us. I think this is the consequences for David's sin with Bathsheba and, and Uriah. You know, he, he tried to normalize it and then Nathan says, no, it's evil. And then his sons go down this same path and in some ways they take it further. And why wouldn't they? Dad is the king, and look what he does. He sleeps with someone he shouldn't and, and covers it up, and it seems to be okay. Is there a link between David's actions and the, and the actions of his sons? I think the link is there. They were still responsible for their own actions, the sons, okay? Is everyone hearing the point I'm making? Yeah. The consequence for our sin ripples out. But the first ripples often hit our family first. Our kids can pay a price. Sometimes the ripples of our sin can go on for generations. It's really hard stuff. Point two is this, that God will always eventually shine a light into the dark. It must have been tempting for the author of 2 Samuel to leave this part of the story out. Or at least spin it a little, because that's what we do, don't we, these days? If something's gone on in an organization or in a government, or in a church even. Protect the organization, protect the leader. 
The temptation is to preserve the legacy of David and to protect him and even God's appointment of him. And I, I can imagine that temptation was high for the author. But God never works like that. He says the truth is actually going to set us free. Not only do we need to know the warts and all version so that we can, you know, we've got to be able to track the big picture for start, but we actually need to hear God's heart on these things. You know, in the high picture, by the way, Bathsheba becomes part of the line of, of David that leads to Jesus. It's amazing how God can make good out of our brokenness. You know, remember we said the same thing about Ruth. Remember we said the same thing about Rahab. All these broken stories actually become part of God's restoration plan. That's, that's how God rolls. But in the low picture, God has never excused or covered up darkness, even in people that he appointed and anointed. We're not just going to cover that up and spin it and hope it goes away. And you don't get more important than David. That's why Nathan had to intervene. It's why it's still in the Bible today. We had to see the light shine into the dark. I mentioned earlier about a church scandal in our own country. You're probably aware of it. It's another leader who's fallen over a cliff. But the darkness in a church is exposed and the ripples go out, don't they? There are those who get upset. You know, maybe a Christian media outlet reports on those things. Maybe they think it's like gossip or that they're trying to tear the church down. They're worried that it will affect our witness. Well, the truth is it will affect our witness when these things are exposed. But I don't think we should get upset at the, at the messengers. God's church won't fail just because we expose the darkness in her. It will affect our witness at first, which is the consequence, but it will improve our witness over time when we shine light in the dark, when God shines light in the dark. We've seen way too many leaders and toxic church cultures get exposed than we should, but the light has to shine in the dark. I actually think the church is better when we go through this kind of pain, by the way. If we just ignore it and cover it over, more people get hurt. That damages the witness. The Royal Commission alerted us to predatory behavior, infiltrating churches, and even worse, leadership who did nothing about it. The toxic and abusive church cultures that have been uncovered of late you know, men taking advantage of women. It makes us rightly upset, but be upset at the pain that's caused, not at the witness that is damaged for us. We've got to shine the light in. The truth is, we want better outcomes. The outcomes in the church and in the wider world, when we shine light into the dark, should be a safer, better, and more loving church for the people that we minister to. Then our witness suddenly looks better. If there is a place which people should be safe in the world, it should be here. It should be in the church. This is why dark moments in the life of our biblical leaders are in the Bible. We need the warning. We need the lesson. We need the light to shine there. The church should be more willing to do it than anyone else. That's why it's always sadder to hear about the cover-up than the original. Maybe I'll get a little amen just from everyone here. Okay, good. <laughs> Point three is this, we all need a Nathan. Yes, I know it's, a, I know it's ironic. But I, I need a Nathan. I have at least two in my life, two friends who I trust completely. 
And those two friends can speak honestly to me, and I do in return as well. We need these people to caution us when we're close to the edge of the cliff. Or sometimes, kind of like David, when we've gone over and we don't realise or we don't acknowledge it. We all need an Nathan because someone has to lovingly and patiently hold us from the edge and sometimes set us on that path of restoration. Which brings me to point four. That was a nice short one. Are you happy about that? <laughs> point four is this, and this is the last one. Confession is the only path out of the ravine. If there is an example David set for us out of this sad story that we can follow, it's his example of repentance. You might remember when Saul got called out for what he was doing wrong, every excuse in the book came out, right? You know, the spin, the narrative, the deception. David repented immediately and openly because while he had obviously kind of wandered from God's own heart, in the end, deep down, he, he's still that boy whose heart does want to follow after God's own heart. It's there in him still. He, his example is the way for us. David took full ownership. Not reluctantly. There's no blame shifting. No, what about such and such? Or if I hadn't done you know, X, I wouldn't have had to do Y. Or if someone had done X, I wouldn't have had to do Y. Confession means owning your part fully and completely. He was responsible for Uriah's death and, and all the pain he had caused to so many. He was responsible for what he'd done against God. Honest confession means we own it. We just own it. David's confession is genuine. And so as we get ready today to, to conclude, here's the thing about confession. It, it, it's the... It's the pathway out of the ravine. It's the essential beginning to something beautiful and restored. I know the ripples might continue, but God is the risen Christ who loves resurrection. Genuine confession leads to forgiveness. When God forgives and he promises he will there is nothing better than being right with God and experiencing grace from Him. We may have a long journey back in this world. There may even be a mess that ripples out for years and years, but our loving God desires to be right with us. When we repent, He responds, it's loving arms. You just have to remember the prodigal son. God waiting, the Father waiting at the gate, sees you coming, that path of repentance, and runs with arms open wide. So this morning, I know it's Mother's Day and there's kind of, there's a lot of good things going on, but I really felt like God said, in this message is an opportunity for us if we need to confess something. So I ask you to stand with me. And the team can come and prepare as well. So David actually wrote a song of confession, Psalm 51, and I'd say most of you know it quite well. And this morning I thought 
Why don't we read it together? So we'll put it up on the screen. And uh, I'll lead you. But let's read this psalm of confession together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Next page. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desire faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence and take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. We'll stop there, Joseph. There's a really old song by uh, Keith Green, Showing My Age Here. It's based on this psalm. And we're going to sing it together. But as we do, I want to offer an opportunity to you. I just wonder this morning, has God kind of just put His, His hand or His finger on your heart and there's something in there that He's just saying, Nathan, confess this to me. I want to forgive you. I want to show grace to you. I want to restore you. I want to bring you out of the pit, out of the ravine. You know, maybe you need to go and offer apologies to someone during the week or, or whatever it is, and that, that might be your journey. But this is the place to start. Because 1 John 1.9 says this. We'll put it on the screen. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's the God that we serve and He wants that for everyone here today. So as we sing this song and even the next one, we're going to do this chorus and then we'll sing another song. I invite you, you can just come to the altar, just bow a knee, even if it's just for 20 seconds, 30 seconds, a minute, whatever it takes and just talk to God and confess. Like John said, you know, there'd be no team of pastors or prayer people out here. It'll be just you and God. That's the invitation I want to give to you today because He is faithful and just and will forgive. He's going to show you the way out.